on today's episode. You can hold ethics and success in the same hand. They don't need to be opposing. And I've seen that in practice and I've seen the results that come out of it. And I am biased, but I think when you have that value driven, that ethics by design, innovation and approach to business, it always results in stronger technology, stronger products, stronger companies, stronger people behind the scenes, which is really the big driver. Welcome to the Active Share podcast that explores less obvious investing insights in a world that's always changing. I'm your host, Hugo Scott Gall. Today, I am pleased, delighted to have with me Olivia Gamelin. Olivia is the founder and CEO of Ethical Intelligence. She works directly with business leaders on the operational and strategic development of responsible AI and has advised various organizations ranging from Fortune 500 to Series A startups in utilizing ethics and a decision-making tool. She is the author of Responsible AI, Implementing an Ethical Approach in Your Organization, scheduled for release in June 2024. Olivia, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Hugo. I'm excited to be here. Great. So let's get going. Let's start with high-level I guess it's just a high-level framing question. How do you define AI ethics? What does it include? What does it not include? Is it your definition? Is it a commonly established definition? How do you think about that? Yeah, well, I can actually break it down into a few different pieces, Hugo. So from a big umbrella term of how, really, if you meet any ethicist, how we'll define it is AI ethics is the practice of implementing our values, our human values into our technology, specifically in AI. That is kind of the commonly accepted one. But what I like to define AI ethics and, and responsible AI is I like to actually split these into two different things. If you've heard of the term responsible AI, that's really kind of an industry term that's, that's been picking up a lot lately. And also, I guess, the title of my book at the same time. But AI ethics, to me, is a very design-based approach, a very design uh, practice where I'm looking at the technology itself and I'm looking at whether I need to protect for values or align for values. And I can go into more depth there. But if you then look from AI ethics to responsible AI, responsible AI is the big umbrella that fits all of these different topics, such as AI ethics, regulation, governance, safety. Responsible AI, really, if you want to take a step back, is the practice of developing AI in a responsible manner. So much more focused on the operations and development of AI rather than, let's say, the exact design and features that you're looking at. But is that still a framework that you've developed, or is it a commonly accepted framework that you're importing from elsewhere and advising people on how to implement? Yeah, so the split that, that I just told you about between AI ethics and responsible AI is commonly accepted. I think my framework comes into play actually on the responsible AI side. I work specifically through a framework that I've designed on how to strategically implement responsible AI and what kind of gaps exist within an organization. But overall, people will see that difference, that split of AI ethics fits underneath this umbrella of responsible AI. So when you advise companies, what are the things they are struggling with? What are, I guess, the most frequently asked questions in response to that? What are the most frequently used sort of answers you give them? So a lot of companies, if they are in a high risk industry, so you're thinking, let's say financial health or anything media, they are very much focused on risk. So the questions that I get there is, 
What am I missing? Am I compliant with the law? What kind of regulation do I need to be watching for that's incoming? What kind of risks are associated with our specific use cases? It gets really down into this risk-based, I must protect mindset. How do I protect to make sure that I am not doing harm unintentionally? That's one type of kind of a box of questions, let's say. I also get on the other side of companies that are looking more at taking an innovation-based approach towards AI ethics and responsible AI. Those kind of questions come in from companies that are in, let's say, a little bit more of the creative fields or industries that don't necessarily have strict regulations or standards already in place. And those companies are really looking at how do I make this a competitive edge? How do I turn something like privacy or fairness or transparency into a competitive edge where I stand out from my competition in the market? So I don't have a blanket answer for that. There's really these kind of two pockets that or these two categories that a mindset of companies will fit in. And is it your overall view? These are very high level questions that I've got much more specific ones to come. But is it your overall view that Companies are very much part of setting standards, commonly accepted practices as this evolves, as the capabilities evolve versus just taking guidance, legislation and interpreting it, that they can be part of creating, demonstrating best practice. So you're hitting on a huge debate that's going on right now with some of the major players in the European Union states that the current regulation or the proposed regulation was too strict, where it was really coming from this mindset that it is regulation and policy that is guiding uh, the practice of AI versus instead of companies having space to be able to help shape the face of best practices in AI. So it's become this hot debate of, is it companies coming in, giving that guidance, being able to influence as the pace of the market goes or as the pace of, of innovation goes, or is it the responsibility of these legal bodies I can give you my perspective on this. From my point of view as an ethicist, something is hard-coded into our regulations once we've figured out concrete answers. Ethics is a very gray space. There's a lot of needing to find balance and different context setting. There's not necessarily black and white answers. Once we find those black and white answers, though, that's when it moves into regulation and law. But that means that regulation, law, legal, compliance, that's the baseline. That is what you absolutely must be doing, but it doesn't mean what you should be doing. That's where ethics kicks in right above that. So how much of a role should, you mentioned important legislative act coming, how much of a role should governments have? And within that, and this is a really sort of simple question, but like who gets to decide? Presumably, you shouldn't have the inventor deciding on the uses for a technology. You need an ethicist alongside. You need multidisciplinary people around the table to really understand the consequences of something. I'm really curious about who should get to decide in your opinion. And that's really, is it public sector, private sector? Absolutely. And it's a really layered question there because like you were saying, it's public versus private. It, the answer is both. I'm going to drive you a little bit crazy because most of the time I'm going to start an answer with it's both. But that's a classic ethicist there. It's public and private. Public meaning we need to have the public interest in mind, but private also considering that that is where the development's coming and they, people in the private sector are the ones that know the technology best. 
one of the challenges right now with right, with the current regulation is it's set by by the public sector that doesn't necessarily have the experience of working on the technology or really understanding how the AI is developed, how AI is developed, how it's conceptualized, who sits around the table in the private sector. It, it can kind of be behind these doors where the question is, well, we're not sure, but we'll, we'll, we'll try and regulate and that causes frustration. So that balance between public and private is, is incredibly important. Public brings in that social good, that, that public interest while private brings in really the expertise and know-how of what's going on in the actual development cycles. Then to your second point of who sits around the table, well, I would love to see more ethicists around the table, to be honest. I think the challenge that we're facing right now when it comes to that organic growth of our technology of AI is we have the measurements of success that we're using aren't necessarily in tune with what we as a culture, as a society, as uh, global citizens really want them to be. So if you're looking for measurements of success of short-term revenue growth or numbers growth or financial return, then that's something that you can be looking for around the table. But if you don't have someone that sat at the table, like an ethicist that's looking at more long-term impact and using that as a success marker, that's where we start to see some of that imbalance when it comes to that organic growth like you were talking about and where we need a little more control and, and really people that think, I want to say, have a different approach to how technology is developed in the sense that, like I've been saying, I'm an ethicist. I don't have black and white answers. I, I exist in the gray. A lot of these questions that we're facing exist in the gray and they're difficult to deal with. So you need people with that different kind of mindset around the table to balance out the minds that are already sitting there. I guess as the world became more digital, the legal system and not just the legal system, but all the things that are around that aren't law, but clearly society values and wants to protect was challenged as, as a lot of economic activity shifted online, a lot of human activity shifted into digital world away from physical. Does AI accelerate the need for the legal system to change? That actually you're adding, you were physical and analog, then you became digital, and now you've got a high level of, I guess, sort of intellectual capability residing outside of humans that can do more things, it can infer, it can create, it can analyze, it can adapt and change things, it can imitate. Is this a big stress to the legal system, never mind the, the ethics around that on top of that? It would depend on who you ask. I would say yes. I would say that this is definitely a point in time where we need to adapt and we need to grow. I keep pointing back to the EUA Act only because it's been making such big progress and it's going to be a huge topic in this in the next six months even. But I want to point to that act because when the act was first put out, when the regulation was first written, there was no mention of generative AI, nothing whatsoever. And then we had the release of ChatGPT, and it actually stalled the development of the AI Act because they had to go back and say, okay, how do we account for this new model? Even though generative AI did exist before ChatGPT, it just wasn't a prevalently used uh, type of architecture. So with using that as an example, the way the law was written before was looking at specific use cases of AI and then having then our AI development outpace even the process of bringing that regulation into effect is a huge indicator that we need to rethink at least how some of these legal systems work. How do we either make them adaptable so that they can grow alongside the development of AI or 
shorten those feedback loops to be able to keep up, keep pace with the development of our technology. And that's a time-honored problem. Technology moves faster than governments can. Where does democracy come into this in that to know the will of the people, do you have to start asking them more often what they think about some of these thorny issues? But where there are democracies involved, should governments be trying to get ahead of this and asking people what they think? Or is it more in response to the technology has evolved? We understand as governments that this may not be popular. We're now going to ask you what you think. So it's is there a democratic deficit versus pace of technology here? I would say there is... I wouldn't put the democratic deficit on the government. I would actually put it within the enterprise themselves. So one of the challenges that I see companies facing quite often is a lack of feedback loop in their development processes. And what I mean by feedback loop is quite literally talking to their users and getting that, talking to their users and talking to experts in the field that they're designing or uh, producing, developing for. So if you think about it, anything from a healthcare startup. They are developing some software for nurse pra- nurse practitioners to be able to use. There's this breakdown of remembering you have to talk to the nurse practitioners to understand what their needs are. And you have to actually, just because you are designing the software doesn't mean you, you know the best solutions for that profession. You have to talk to the nurse practitioners. You have to talk to the experts and get that feedback loop in and that kind of democratic input into this is shaping really what a software platform and AI system, any of that would look like. So I would say less actually on the government. I would say less on the government level. And I would would actually put that democratic breakdown into prescribe it specifically to enterprise. But I'm still interested in the role of government in that you could paint, I think, quite a pessimistic, gloomy picture that the world is becoming more fractured. So is AI so serious in terms of you know, if it becomes so powerful and it starts making decisions outside of big decisions outside of human control, that there does need to be global coordination. And does it worry you that in a world that is becoming maybe less friendly and a little more hostile to each other, whichever sort of blocks of, of geographic countries you're thinking of, this couldn't have come at a worse time. The requirement for global coordination is up there with maybe biopharma, maybe with nuclear. And yet the world is becoming a a more fractious, less coordinated place. Yeah, there's absolutely a strong need for that global coordination like you're talking about, Hugo. I think one of the challenges that is, I would say, more unique actually to the case of AI is the fact that we have these systems that can reach a global scale, hence the need for that global coordination. But the way that we interact with our technology is heavily influenced by our different cultures. So although we need that global communication to be able to work on on the main risks of AI and those those really kind of those existential major risks that we're seeing, when it comes to specific risks or specific application, it still needs to be culturally sensitive, which makes it difficult for that global collaboration. I mean, you, you can look at you can compare China versus the U.S., very, very different approaches to AI. And how do we account for that if we're supposed to have uh, some type of global cooperation there? Yeah, this is clearly going to bigger and bigger issue. Which countries have you seen? Maybe maybe it's not fair to ask you this. Which countries have you seen particularly ahead of the curve on this, particularly thoughtful around this? And is that, when you think about countries, is it always reflecting, well, what are that country's interests? So if, if a country is very exposed to certain industries, does that make them more likely to focus on AI in a certain way? If these countries are islands versus landlocked, the geographic 
location. So are there any sort of patterns you've seen or is it an unfair question to say like who's really thoughtful and ahead of the curve on this? I would almost say that it's too early to ask that question only because we're just now seeing in this last year alone countries catching up, let's say, to the AI game of actually understanding, oh, we, we need to play a more active role. So far, it's really been driven by the private sector. Now we're seeing it, for example, with the executive order coming out of the United States, we're seeing the powerhouses start to play a bigger role. And you'll see differences, say, with the UK, it's a very innovation-based approach. EU is a very risk-based approach around AI. So I don't think there's any clear winner at the moment. I think it really is any country's game to, as things are shaping up both from responsible AI, again, that's my lens, but responsible AI, but also the, the AI field as a whole. Can we talk a bit about accountability? So a decision is made, whether it's by a government or a police force or a company, that turns out to be an incorrect decision and has harmful consequences for someone. It could be I don't know, misrecognizing them by a facial re piece of facial recognition software and, and AI performs some calculation, something whereby someone is falsely arrested and or customer is removed from a company's database or something happens. Well, it wasn't me, it was the AI that did it. Is that okay? Can you say that? Fortunately, no. Who is to take the blame? That's still up for debate. That's still a big question. But really, at the end of the day, you look to our legal systems, you can't you can't prosecute an AI system. You have to prosecute a person, a company, whoever was behind it. So even though it may feel like we can hide behind these systems, at the end of the day, we really can't. There will always be legal, legal ramification. But also speaking as an ethicist, there is always blame to carry. There is always the pain and blame that that needs to be assigned not to a system, but to a person. I guess my example was, you know, someone, machine says you did something and you didn't do it. But what happens when it's more not about something that happened, but it's more about preventing something or, you know, you've been excluded from something and didn't know you were excluded based on, you know, algorithmic prediction? Is that still that those cases can be harder to prove? And oftentimes you don't know a potential harm has been done to you. So it's easy, you know, facial recognition says you were in New York when this thing happened and you were nowhere near, you can prove you weren't. So that's, that's an easy, easy mistake, an easy error to correct. But the biases within any algorithm, the biases that have caused someone to be rejected, denied, not included, some harm, potential harm may have been done, but it's harder to prove, harder to be aware of. Again, is your answer the same one, which it still goes back to the owner or the user, the user of the decision that AI generated or the owner of the AI system is still accountable? That one depends. Like you're saying, it, it can be incredibly difficult to pinpoint that there is some harm occurring. You as a user can say, I think something feels off, or I don't even know something feels off because I'm in my own bubble. I'm my, my own bubble of, of user experience. I have no idea that I should actually be experiencing this technology or this, this system or this decision-making in a different way. It's difficult to be able to pinpoint those in the first place. But I would say we're actually moving towards a direction now. There's There's been so much research and, and brilliant work done in the space of responsible AI and ethics that we are able to preemptively catch that kind of breakdown in the system 
more and more with more accuracy. So we're actually moving away from a time where you can skirt accountability saying, oh, you know, we didn't know. And no one knew because it's such a brand new technology. That gap, that window of grace is very quickly shrinking right now because of the pace that we've been able to develop from a responsible AI field, be able to develop our understanding, our risk databases, our, our calculations to be able to pinpoint, no, you should have known better. There was a very clear indicator like um, you should have checked how your data set was being labeled. That is common knowledge now, at least, I mean, from my field, that is common knowledge now. You can no longer claim that as we didn't know that biases could exist in data labeling. It's well known now. So that gap is closing. When you look at the evolution of social media from how it started to where it is now, clearly it's been a very hotly discussed, I mean, recent events. You certainly had the CEO of Facebook, up, CEO of Meta up in front of Congress. So this is still, I think it's fair to characterize it as an area where legislators, regulators have found it hard to come to a commonly agreed upon set of governing criteria or principles. When you look at the evolution of social media, both its impact on society and its, it has clearly had big benefits depending on where you live and your context and how you live your life. But there's certainly enough people in the world to say this is beneficial. Otherwise, you wouldn't see billions of people using it, you assume. But do you think with hindsight, it could have been managed better from an ethical point of view that, that actually clearer operating principles from an ethical point of view could have been applied and that the industry maybe just ran so fast that the the government and the regulators couldn't keep up? Yes, I firmly believe that there could have been tighter feedback loops in terms of an ethics perspective where we could have caught some of these let's say, I'm not going to use the word malicious, but these negative consequences, we could have caught them and we could have changed the core structure of, of how we approach social media earlier on. The challenge now is it's social networking. It's it's like um, software lock-in. We've been using it for so long for how it's functioned that it's really difficult to go back and change it. For example, Facebook, back when it was still Facebook, when Facebook first put out that like button, they didn't necessarily have the right control set to be able to take in research that was coming in on the effects of that like button and then feed that back into product and feature design. For example, when after the year after that like button was released, suicide rates, I think, doubled or tripled. It was quite a significant amount because and they were able to trace it back to that like button. Now, Facebook didn't at that time have the right mechanisms in place to to have that reflection, that feedback loop and say, this is a direct cause. That's not good. We don't that is not the purpose. That is not the values. That's not the purpose of what we founded this company on. We need to go back and, and rethink that feature. Now it's so ingrained that we're looking at Instagram trying to hide the amount of likes a photo gets. And that's been in the works for at least five years where they keep testing, oh, well, we'll take the amount of likes down. And then they see that it drops numbers in engagement. And so it's so ingrained in how we use social media, even though we know it causes these adverse effects, we can't quite come off of it. But if we had had those values-based, that ethics-based feedback loop earlier on, we would have been able to change and adapt. I think the point that I'm trying to make here is 
a lot of tech is move fast, let's try things. But instead of move fast, break things, we need to build in another step there. If we can move fast and break things, but then we have to have the accountability and the humility to say, we broke something we weren't supposed to, we're going to fix it now before it's, it's too ingrained and it's past being able to change. But you grew up in Silicon Valley. Is that too optimistic? I mean, you, you know, you live there, you understand the place. And obviously it's a, it's a hotbed of innovation and progress. Is it too great a responsibility to ex expect from a, a bunch of very entrepreneurial people? Or is it something that they were aware of but proceeded anyway? Or is it something where someone like you and people like you could have helped more? I guess is it... It just it's just the nature of the beast. If you if you want all the innovation, there are going to be some perhaps ne negative might be too strong, but there will be some un undesired consequences that go with it, or some unintended consequences that go with it. Yeah, of course. Always, life is a balance of both good and bad, and and we're never going to get past that. And I think uh, this is probably where I will differ from a lot of ethicists that you'll hear speak. Is I understand I will not be able to reach everyone, and that isn't my goal to be able to reach the companies or the entrepreneurs that are that are in a different mindset that I I really can't even reach that are more focused on those short-term benefits and and trying to move fast and break things without any consciousness to or any accountability who I work with and and really this growing I want to call it this growing not trend but sentiment that I'm finding in the Valley is just this hunger for something different. This really, I'm worked to the bones. I've been working for startups and I'm tired of not having purpose. I'm tired of seeing bad tech come out. I'm tired of building something that I don't really believe in. I need something more than this. It's this, this growing sentiment towards having work be more value-driven, having even the, the technology, the purpose of that technology serve some type of of greater good or greater purpose beyond just what the marketing team is putting out, but truly making good impact in people's lives. So I think I, I would say there, we're always going to have what people will call bad actors. But I not even think I firmly believe there is a shift happening with, especially in the Silicon Valley, but there's a shift towards, hey, wait a second, what we changed the world why don't we actually change the world how we want to change it instead of just keep changing it for, for change's sake? Okay, so I've got a few closing questions. That's quite an optimistic answer. Are you overall optimistic here? Or, or, or are you, you can see some optimism, but you can also see a big laptop. You can see some big risks here. The way where do you sort of net come out? We're mature enough as a society, we've learned in social media that actually this is going to test us, but actually the world overall will respond and be responsible in harnessing using this technology for the best amounts of humankind, or actually, let's go full dystopian. I have been lovingly nicknamed the optimistic ethicist, and <laughs> I definitely stick with that nickname. I am an optimist because of the work that I've done, because of the people that I've worked with, and the change that I've seen. I think what I'm after is I'm looking at people that want to achieve success i'm not saying you can hold ethics and success in the same in the same hand they don't need to be opposing and i've seen that in practice and i've seen the results that come out of it and 
I am biased, but I think when you have that value driven, that that ethics by design innovation and approach to business, it always results in stronger technology, stronger products, stronger companies, stronger people behind the scenes, which is really the big driver. So I am optimistic because I've seen the change that is already starting to happen. And the more success stories that we have, the more momentum is going to build there. Well, that's a great answer. I guess these things are hard to predict with a wide range of outcomes, but I, I predict you're going to be very busy. I know you are already, but I think uh, demand for you and your services is going to go up and up and up because you know, as investors, we think about risks in lots of different ways, but we certainly think about the risk companies have for what they do and how societal attitudes may change to what it, what it is they do. And certainly, I think companies, we see companies in lots of industries who tell us they're going to be better because of AI, decision-making, their analytics, and their customer relationship management, lots of different ways. But clearly, it creates risks, and they're going to be, I think, confronted with the society expects more and more from corporates in terms of leadership on, on issues. I suspect they will be expected to lead in these areas. So I think that you're going to be very, very busy. Yes, that would be an understatement. And I think, Hugo, a really interesting point here that I just want to add on real quick about risks and that mindset of risk. So MIT and BCG put out a report last year that I quote all the time because it put a very beautiful number to the work that I do. And they found that companies that engage in responsible AI practices actually reduce failure risk at risk of failure rates of AI by 28%, which is huge. If you don't already know risk of AI failure, the AI risk failure rate is anywhere between 86 to 93%, which just seems like an insane number. And typically, so any type of solutions that you're being sold to reduce that risk, you're looking at reducing it by one or two percent because that's even a huge margin in one or two percent. But 28 percent is unheard of, that kind of reduction. And it's simply because at the end of the day, responsible AI is good business practice. So you are de-risking your development processes. And then when you're when you have this ethics layer, you are also being able you are establishing yourself as really a leader, both in your industry, in your field, it starts to compound and it, it becomes, you start to see this as it is more risky not to do responsibly and not to do ethics than it is to invest into establishing these practices. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, this is going to be one of these things that maybe delineates winners versus losers even more starkly. And, and I'm sure you all well love that. So look, I want to say, and Livia, thank you very much for coming on the show. Good luck with your book when it comes out in June. I'm sure it will be voraciously read as it should be. So thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you for spending time with us. Thank you so much, Hugo. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Active Share. The Active Share is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, and Spotify. And if you'd like, please leave us a review. To hear additional insights from William Blair Investment Management, visit us at active.williamblair.com and follow us on Instagram at williamblairim. This content is for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended as investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any security or to adopt any investment strategy. Investment advice and recommendations can be provided only after careful consideration of investors' objectives, guidelines, and restrictions.
The views and opinions expressed are those of the speakers as of the date of this recording, are subject to change without notice as economic and market conditions dictate, and may not reflect the views and opinions of other investment teams within William Blair Investment Management. Factual information has been obtained from sources we believe to be reliable, but its accuracy, completeness, or interpretation cannot be guaranteed. Any discussion of particular topics is not meant to be comprehensive and may be subject to change. This material may include forecasts, estimates, outlooks, projections, and other forward-looking statements. Due to a variety of factors, actual events may differ significantly from those presented. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. Any investment or strategy mentioned herein may not be suitable for every investor. References to specific companies are for illustrative purposes only and should not be construed as investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any security. William Blair Investment Management may or may not own any securities of the companies referenced. It should not be assumed that any investment in the companies referenced was or will be profitable.